when Jack and I worked together, we didn't really... He did the work. He did the artwork. I didn't put in. What I would do is have an idea for a story, and I would tell Jack what I wanted the plot to be. And then I would leave him alone, and he would draw it always better than I had expected it would be. I would write the dialogue after I saw the drawings, which is a great way to do it, because then the dialogue and the drawings go together perfectly. See, the other companies, they wrote a whole script, and the dialogue was there before the artist drew it. So when the artist was drawing it, he had a hope he was making the character look like he was saying what he was saying. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But when you put the dialogue in after the drawing was done, you could make it absolutely perfect because you're marrying it and um, it, it was a good way to work. When it comes to comic books, there is no shortage of opinions amongst enthusiastic fans, especially when you're talking about the golden age of Marvel, AKA the 1960s. For years, Marvel fans have hotly, hotly uh, debated whether writer Stan Lee or artist Jack Kirby contributed more to the creation of and to the stories written about the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, Thor, Hulk, etc., etc. And that same argument has been applied to Stan and Steve Ditko when it comes to Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Now, the hosts of this podcast have typically been Team Kirby and Team Ditko, but is that correct? Over the decades, comic book writers like Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Jason Aaron, uh, Jonathan Hicks, have all created characters and written stories that are very specific in tone, or the conceit of this series is really specific, or even have really high concepts that, in many ways, can certainly balance out the look of the comic or the drawing of the comic, but in some cases may even outweigh that. So aren't we doing those writers an injustice by ignoring that fact? On this episode, Dwight and I attempt to litigate the contributions of the comic book writer versus the contributions of the comic book artist. Now, did we end this age-old debate? Hell no, but it was a lot of fun to have. Thanks for listening. Now, how long have you been listening to uh, to Life Health's podcast? Uh, since Adrian introduced it to me, man, about... Um about three months ago. Okay. So I got quite a few issues under my, quite a few issues, comic right. talk. Quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> Everything goes back to that, man. It always does, yo. <laughs> you know? Quite a few episodes underneath my belt. And um, I was surprisingly, I mean, his his candor and his energy, man, is effusive, you know, and he, he really engages you. He's a, he's actually a fun listen. So I, I really like what he has to say. That's that's kind of my thing as well. I've only listened to one and a half, the one that you, uh, that I you know, about Stanley and, uh, not about Stanley and Jack Kirby, but it was about Dr. Strange. And then he kind of goes off on a rant about Stanley and Jack Kirby and, and, and all of that. But I agree with you. I th- I think he's a, he is a fun listen. Um, he's pretty engaging for it to be like a monologue essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, uh, and he's very likable. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the things you didn't get from the, the from the nineties. It's like you, as, as we were, uh, only getting from certain news, outlets that he was kind of a a, a a crabby baby and that he was always you know eh, it's my way or no way and you know I, i'm i'm the young gun here and i do what i want to do and, you know so on et cetera. right you know? but that 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 obvious that obviously either was an exaggeration of his mm-hmm. you know of who of who, who his persona or he's just you know he's matured and he's a different person now than he was when he was 20 right which i suspect is probably a combination of both those things you know what i mean 
Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. But it definitely leans, it definitely in terms of his show goes, he's definitely, um, the fact that he has all these, these, these colorful insight uh, and anecdotes to, to what the industry was about for him as it sort of, as a perception led him to be who he was as a person and how he grew. So it's really nice. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And the episode in question is uh, it's called Stanley and the Strange Truth Behind the Doctor, uh, Rob Liefeld's Observations podcast. That was the one that uh, Dwight and I met up and we were talking, and um, and then he mentioned uh, the episode. And I said, what's a good one to start? We mentioned the podcast. I said, what's a good one to start with? And so he said, oh, well, this one was actually pretty interesting. And then, you know, Dwight and I started talking about, you know, Stanley and Jack Kirby and the collaboration between a comic book writer and a comic book artist. And traditionally, typically, having art backgrounds, Dwight, you know, and Adrian way more so than myself, you know, we've always kind of cited, you know, like a team Jack, team Kirby, right? Team Ditko, team Burn, you know. Uh, but you know, the more we talked about it in the parking lot, I started thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, do we actually have that right? You know, is that you know, is that just kind of a confirmation bias exactly yeah that yeah. we're employing here and so we want to try to try to examine this as dispassionately as we can mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> good luck on my side <laughs> right I mean, well yeah exactly <laughs> same here yo you know but you know that's how you do it in science you know you look at the evidence and you look at it dispassionately and you accept it for what it is mm-hmm. you know in science it's this is this is something that a lot of people don't do in science the thing that makes science the best tool to get to the truth is, is you come up with a scientific theory and then you go about trying to prove that theory, you know, in a laboratory, under, in a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. And then once you do that, then you spend an equal amount of time trying to disprove your own theory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that nobody does. You know, people in the average everyday life, you know, they get an opinion and they sit on it and they never say, OK, well, let me try to unravel my own opinion and see if it actually holds up. Mm-hmm. And that's how we get to scientific discovery. And, you know, because in science, if you put some shit out there that's that's frugazy, frugazy. you know, another <laughs> a, another scientist will take great joy in smiting you and besmirching your name. And, you know, and that's it. You know, that's how that's how it goes. So that's it. That's exactly how it goes. Yeah. But the but the comic book writer versus the comic book artist, you know, and, you know, comics going back to. Yeah, American comics, for sure. Right. You know, uh, the production cycle has always been a, a collaboration of people doing multiple duties. You know, a writer writes the script, the artist draws the script, um, and then the inker would come in and, and ink the, uh, you know, the comic book uh, artist pencils, and then a colorist would come in, a letterer, and then it goes off to the publisher, and that's it. Right. Um, and, you know, we would oftentimes, certainly it was this way for many years, to the, the DC tradition was, you know, the script is given to the artist and then the artist, you know, uh, draws it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Marvel way that came about in the 60s, you know, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, uh, Steve Ditko, uh, and then eventually, you know, people like, you know, Don Heck and so forth, would be, you know, Stan would give like a synopsis or he would describe what happens in the story. Right. And then these artists would go off and then draw. And of course... You know, you and I could have a conversation about a story, and then when I bring bring you back, you know, my my drawings, you'd be like, I wasn't thinking about any of this shit, you know? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and even if you give a very detailed script, I imagine the same thing still happens. You know, is the artist is going to interpret, and then the writer goes back and says, "Oh, this is a good bit you got here. Let me let me adjust, you know, the story or or some a story beat in regards to you know what you've given me." But 
Right, right. Um, when do you when do you, when was the when did you first become aware as a as a young comic book reader and, and, and certainly as a uh, as a budding wannabe comic book artist of the differences between getting the script and then you drawing it, you know, let's say verbatim versus the Marvel way of, you know, hey, we're going to talk about it and then you go off and draw it and then I'll just come back and fill in word balloons and, and, and uh, you know, word and thought balloons and so forth. Um, it became quite evident to me um, in terms of initial understanding when it comes to like the interaction between dis- dispensational shores that it was a thing wherein it had to be a thing wherein I think I was the first time I saw a red. I mean, I knew it was always going on because you see writer in the byline, you see artist in the byline, and how much right. who was who was doing right, what. Right, right, right. But it came evident to me when I first picked up uh, how to draw comics the Marvel way. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I looked inside of that and I saw okay, this is the script that that that, that uh, I think John Romita was going on, or was it no Sal, uh, John Bison was was looking at, and he was like, okay, this is what this is what this is what quote unquote supposedly. The, the writer of the said comic gave me and it's like okay I went with this and I changed the angles and I had various angles I could choose from because in that book what it does a good job of it's like okay this is the way it could be drawn and this is how you draw comics the Marvel way mm-hmm. and the Marvel was always seemingly more dynamic than what you know standard comics was, was, was giving you and they had a point because if you look at the dispensation of how or the breakdown of how Marvel comics were produced versus how DC comics were produced there was a, a a serious difference in terms of quality of what was executed between the two companies for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. That was probably my initial my my initial uh, assessment of of how much harder it was to be an artist versus it was to be a writer, and how much reason the reason they could do like six books a month, writers could do six books a month versus artists like one book a month, because you know it just wasn't it, the the chores weren't evenly distributed. the 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 onus of the execution of this of this art form was for the art, if the artist didn't get it done, there was no publication date to be met. Right. You know, I mean, you can, so, I mean, you know, that's my initial um, understanding of what script meant to, from script to, to, to draw on chores, the dispensation of the, the value or dispensation of the, of the two things weren't equal at all. So. Right. And we've talked about this on the show before, but you know, comics being a visual medium, you know, without the visuals, you don't really have a comic book. You know, if you take the pictures away, you just have kind of a, a really gappy story, uh, not <laughs> right. much there. But if you take the words away, you still have essentially a comic book. You still have the movement and the progression of a, of a story, a tale, a narrative of some kind. So, but I think that also too, like I remember, like you're like you're describing. You know, I remember seeing the credits box, and you know, and you know, as a kid, I was like, oh man. These are the people right, who make the right. comic books, you know. Who is this Sal right, Buscema? Right, right. You know, <laughs> yes, you know. Who is, who is this uh, you know, Carmine Infantino and Bob Haney and you know, and then you know, Stan Lee and Roy, T- you know, who are these people? These people are wizards. Yeah, exactly. And I can remember, you know, being certainly back in the 80s being a big X-Men fan and then eventually seeing things like co-plotters, you know, because there was this you know, and I don't, even I was aware of it, you know, from reading like, you know, printed interviews with uh, with John Byrne and people like that, you know, that, that he, he and Claremont butted heads, Chris Claremont and John Byrne, they, he butted heads with Claremont because he felt like he was offering more to the story than simply executing Claremont's script. Right. And so eventually it got to like co-plotter credits and then eventually John Byrne, you know, became known as a writer artist himself after that. Chris and I would talk on the phone coming up with these intricate, intricate plots. And then I would draw what I remembered. 
because I figured the stuff I remembered was the important stuff. But after issue 143, Byrne walked away. Chris and I constantly argued over how he was writing the characters, that I didn't like the voices he gave the characters, I didn't like the attitudes he gave the characters. And one day I realized that however much I didn't like them, that was what was seeing print. So in the minds of the fans, that was the X-Men. So if I didn't like Chris's writing, I didn't like the X-Men. And I couldn't stay. But that was the first time I was aware of the like there being a conflict. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, and not so much because of the chores that the, you know, that, that the artist, John Byrne, was taking on versus the chores that Chris Claremont was were taking on, but just the fact that he felt like he was contributing more to right. the story than he was being credit, credited for. And if you go back to, uh, like on Rob's podcast, talking about like Stanley and Jack Kirby for, you know, for things like the Avengers and Thor and Hulk and, mm-hmm. and Fantastic Four, and then, you know, eventually you get to, you know, Steve Ditko and, and Stan Lee as well with Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Is, is that was always kind of something that was more in the background. It wasn't, I guess it felt more background to me that we knew that they co-created these characters, but we didn't realize, okay, that at least I didn't at, and until a certain time. Oh, they're just having a conversation about what's going to happen in the book. And then Jack goes off and draws it in two days. And see, and see that's the thing. Like, that's why, and Byrne is right to have that, that, that kind of, any other, any other writer, artist is, is right to have that assertion that you are a co-creator. Because when you're, when you're dealing with the execution of the, of the chores and the labor of the chores, not, let's, not just, let's take the labor out of it. Let's just say in terms of, okay, if they were to get together and literally go panel by panel, this is what we're going to do. And I want you to put this, I want you to put this house, I want you to this, this three-quarter perspective on that particular person. Then I would say, okay, yeah, maybe the writer is more involved with it. But we know, unless you're Alan Moore, that's not really happening. I mean, you're, you're, you know, I mean, these guys are, are taking... I've seen. I've I've been part as as a, as a young budding artist as we as uh, you know the beginning. I've I've seen I've seen scripts from writers where an entire story is done on one page. You know, like they could tell you, you know, panel one is this 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 and this, and then panel you know go go down the entire like like thirty two pages inside of a, a, a four page script. And it's like wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, I wish I could do that. <laughs> I wish I could say, okay, now I'm gonna go. I'm gonna give you art equal to what you gave me in terms of script. But then there's, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no point in quality in terms of that labor. So I mean, for that, for him to insist upon being a co-creator is rightfully so. Is right, righteous, especially when those characters go on to have a life beyond the comic and go and go and go beyond into into your mind in terms of what um, is expected for those characters to interact. You know. Right. So, and this is a funny idea, but so, so even like looking at it, you know, like you said, even just not even talking about the labor portion of it, but you know, you look at something like, you know, like Jack Kirby actually had something to do with the creation of Spider-Man. I think he did the first character design. Right. It's my understanding. uh, And then, and then Ditko interpreted it and then, you know, then the, the, the issues came out. But, you know, the quote that Liefeld, uh, he quotes Stanley from a print article from years ago saying that all of Doctor Strange was Steve Ditko's idea. And if ever there was a, an idea that was completely from the imagination of one Stephen Ditko, it was definitely sure. fucking Doctor Strange. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, the, the mm-hmm. look of it, the trippiness mm-hmm. of it, you know, the designs, uh, the weirdness of it, which I 
absolutely fucking love. Right. <laughs> you it was know. Out there. But um but yeah, it was definitely that. And then, you know, like again, starting this conversation more so with Stan and Jack and Steve Ditko and then moving into, you know, other people and other writers and, and, and artists collaborations. But you know, one of the things that and I'm gonna quote him here again, our friend Don Hillsman. Okay. One of the things that Don pointed out to me many years ago, he said, think about it. He said, did Stan Lee create anything great after his collaborations with Jack and Steve? Mm. He did not. Mm. But Jack and Steve both did. Jack Kirby went on and created the New Gods and the Fourth World at DC. He, he did a lot of other things. Steve Ditko went on and created the Charlton characters, you know, who lived on in Charlton. They're still being published even today. Um, Going to be featured in a movie, The Blue Beetle, Cully Hamner's... Um, Redesign of the Blue Beetle. That Blue Beetle is going to have his has his own movie now. Okay. Okay. So their creations after St- Stan Lee, they've they've gone on and done other great things. Stan didn't really do anything else after that. <laughs> yeah. So he was like that that that's that's like a demarcation point of okay, well who who did this now? You know what I mean? No, but that's that's, that's definitely a point of great exaltation because yeah, I mean, if. <laughs> If your level of if your level of creativity stops at a certain point, because you're no longer with this person, that tells you something about the level of what they're what they're offering to you, you know. And Don was good for those kind of good for those kind of uh, insights, man. It's like, yeah, I mean, you, you know, um, I I just don't it doesn't hold water for me, man. I, I just can't I can't justify. Like I understand that that certain levels, which we get into later, as far as writers go, and 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 what they offer to what they offer to the 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 the, the initial draw. Because their stories are so strong, and and mm-hmm. but in terms of the level of, of cockiness and a, a, a exacerbated level of ego that some of these guys have, based on what they offer in terms of the overall medium itself, is well beyond what they they, they should they should be um, considering. You think so? Yes, man. Yes, yes. Because oh, we get to the nitty gritty now, yo. We get we get into the real yes, bullshit. Yes, because <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna bring it down now. Okay, because honestly, again, a picture's worth a thousand words. If you look at a picture and you're immediately impacted by the design of it, the the level of of, of background study that it takes to achieve that that image, no matter what you add to it as far as story goes, the story can only be elevated by what the by what the author adds to it, or detract from it, depending on what the author adds to it. I recall a great a great cover um, from from Rom. Which is a long time ago, Rom, yo. Wherein Rom Space Night. Rom Space Night, yo. Where 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 Rom had, had just killed some guys that look like they're normal and they're actually die race. And there was a breakdown in terms of wherein there was a split on the cover where the the die race were, were plunging into I guess Wraithville. <laughs> wherever they go. And when they when they when they pass. and and it was just it was an extremely dynamic cover. But I go inside, and the story is like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, they got to that instance, but it wasn't that what drew me as a as a young reader. It was the cover that locked me in, mm-hmm. and you know, if that's not the power of comics, you know, that shows what it takes to get you into the seats to to ride the story, you know, to to, to exhibit in the story, uh, to be to be, and that's not poo pooing writers and what they do. I respect writers. Writers are awesome because without them. They'd just be pretty pictures, you know, to some degree. But the the impetus of what drives you to pick up the comic is the artwork, 
initially. And somewhere in the 90s, it got twisted because I think it's part of the it's part of the success, success of writers or success of artists too, to a certain degree, and not offering a continual intellectual mm-hmm. intellectual hook that would keep you coming back. Because we saw in the nineties as aforementioned Lyfield, you know, how image was just that. It was an image, you know, and without a, a, um, a creative and interesting narrative to carry you through to keep you watching and moving these pictures along in a narrative fashion it, it, it failed of its own weight so that's and that's 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 an important point you know and you and I have talked about this we talked about this when we were uh, together last week mm-hmm. you know the comic book artist wears a ton of hats you know granted if, if you look at it like film and television you know you have a screenwriter they write a script and they're going to describe characters and they're going to describe settings and so on and so forth and they're going to conceive of it that way. And the script for a movie or for a television show is meant to be, it's not meant to be like a document that you pour over in. And it's supposed to be an instruction manual for this is what the movie will look like and sound like and feel like. This is what the television show will look and feel and sound like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a comic book artist, their job, you know, they wear a multitude of hats. They are the director the cinematographer, the set designer, all the prop person, the fight choreographer, hair and makeup, you know, all of those things. But I'm going to push back on what you just said a minute ago. Okay, bring it, bring it, you know. <laughs> two things. Okay. How many comics have you loved simply for the art and continued to buy and read simply for the art? I would be willing to bet you not many. There have been art. There have been books I I bought by artists I loved, and I was like, "This story is trash," and I'm not buying another <laughs> issue. Of it. it just it just it wasn't enough to keep me to look at just look at pretty pictures. Right, right. I, I can go to a museum and do that. I can pull an art book. I can pull a monograph off my bookshelf and just look at pretty pictures and and ooh and ah and and, and ogle them to death. I, 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 but if, good, if good, hold good. on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So good drawing doesn't make a great comic. A great comic, if, if we truly believe that comics is a storytelling medium, like we've been saying for decades, mm-hmm. comparable to television and mm-hmm. film and novels, if it is a storytelling medium, then story, concept, plot, story beats, characterization, and the execution of all of those things don't do matter. I mean, I think I think all of us can think of comics where you bought it and you're like, oh, this looks great, but it's it's garbage. And and we feel in ourselves when that happens. I can name some now. I'm not going to. Yeah, right. But we but when we feel within ourselves, when when the story doesn't live up, it feels like a failure. It's like, oh, right. This is a failure. This is not meeting the standard. And it's not because it's not meeting the standard because the visuals aren't there. It's not meeting the standard because the story is not there. The writing is not there. The narrative is not there. You you can't care about pretty pictures, but you care about stories and characters and plights and peril and will they take the left road or will they take the right road? That's what makes you care. Yeah. And I think the pretty pictures won't make you care about a good comic. It's not a good comic. You know what I mean? No, Am it's I perfect. Sense? No, it's well stated. I mean, yeah, there's that's that and there lies the, the, the line of division. Like at what point do the two have have this amalgam and realize that they're both equally as important um, in terms of in terms of the, the the comic and that they're trying to trying to produce and portray the narrative they're trying to portray. You can't have one without the other, but definitely one does impact the other for sure. And and if the pictures are pretty, 
You know, and it goes both ways. If the pictures are pretty and the story's not there, that's probably what be one of my last issues because my time is of the essence. You know, um, you know. So, 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 let me ask you this as a counter, because I can think of examples of books that where the art wasn't great, but I read it because the story, the story was fantastic. Right, right. Like I wasn't the biggest Dave Gibbons fan, but fucking, you know, Alan Moore's story for Watchmen was just. Right, right. I couldn't, right, I couldn't look right, away, yo. Right. It's true. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And there, there, there are other examples of that where the art was, eh, the art's okay. You know, like, uh, I, like, like, uh, the book Powers, Bendis and, uh, and Michael Avon Oming's Powers. Right. I don't love Oming's art. I think it's good. I'm not, you know, I'm not shitting on it in any way, but it's just not necessarily for me. Yeah. But the story was fantastic. That first trade was, was knockout. No, like like Invincibles in that regard. Like I, I mean, Invincibles that that art style is not my my kind of art style, but but the story in of itself, you know, even the character designs were kind of wonky for me and some, to some degree. I didn't care much for the wonk, for the character designs, but the story that Kirkman concocted along with the artist that did that, that rendered it, it made it like like really one of my new favorite discoveries in terms of how like how, how those those comics uh, went down. S- similarly, for me with the first Walking Dead trade. I mean, I wasn't just, I wasn't, as, I forgot the artist's name who drew the book. Um, yeah. Forgive me. But, but Kirkman's story mm-hmm. was the hook. That was the hook. And, you know, it was like, wow, you know, this is really, this is really outstanding. So I say that to say it's, it's again, keeping the similarities to television and film. Mm-hmm. How many times have you seen a film that looks great, but if the story and the script are not there, it's just not enough to keep you. You won't care. Same thing with a television show. You're like, oh, this is dazzling, but I don't give a shit. Do, do you think? Do you think our? You think our palate's been spoiled by so much goodness? Like uh, in terms of being able to understand the difference between good and bad? I think. I think it's the thing we're in because you we've, mean we're what you're saying? We're, we're elitists, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, no, not not even not elitists, but just um, connoisseurs. Wherein we we've seen so much stuff over our, over our lifetime that we, we could discern like what is well well conscribed and what's not like you know sure i mean i guess yeah sure yeah so I'm, i think uh take that in consideration too wherein for somebody's first comic book to be a certain comic book and certain character and certain creative team that's what their expectations are mm-hmm. you know and and everything else about everything about that is what they like and absorb and 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 think is good a lot of, i guess what i'm saying is a lot of times it's the initial impact that you have when you're in your youth. It's what you're expecting along the way, as far as you know your your creative teams go. I mean, I think that there could certainly be an element of that. I mean, I do think you know, like you said, you know, if you've been consuming media, you know, stories of all kinds and all you know, all shapes and sizes uh, and uh, colors for you know, forty years, fifty years, however you know, however old you are. You know, you are going to become a, con- a connoisseur. You are going to have a particular kind of taste. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still see, you know, movies that I think, oh, wow, that was that was incredible. That was great. Or this was really moving uh, or this was a feast for the eyes. And, you know, you know, my my soul leapt, you know, when I was, you know, you know, I was watching this show, what have you. Right. That still happens to me. But I do think that. Mm-hmm. So let's let's. Let's talk about some examples of collaborations between artists and writers. We started with Jack, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. But, you know, 
you see like Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, you know, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Neil Adams did, he's done a bunch of other comics around that time other than, you know, than, than, than Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Like his X-Men stuff is just... Right, it wasn't great. The art's fine, but nobody cares about those stories. Nobody ever talks about those stories. And nobody ever talks about that era of Neil. We always talk about the ones, you know, where, you know, Superman and, you know, versus Muhammad Ali or Green Lantern, Green Arrow... Uh, I will talk about Dead Man, but I just love Dead Man. I don't think Dead Man was was necessarily right. You know, great, but I just loved it. You know, I just loved it. Right. But um, you know, other things like uh, Wendy and Richard Penny. You know, Elfquest. Yeah. You know, they would write it together, and then she would perform the art. You know, she'd create the art. You know, for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Claremont and John Byrne, of course, on X Men. Of course, of course. Um, and then you know, like you, the aforementioned Alan Moore. You know, Alan Moore collaborated with Dave Gibbons on Watchmen, mm-hmm. with David Lloyd on V for Vendetta, Gary Leach on Marvel Man, mm-hmm. J.H. Williams on uh, Promethea. Yes. And, uh, and and Kevin O'Neill on uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Right. And m- all of those artists are good draftsmen, good storytellers, super solid comic book artists. Mm-hmm. But Moore's concepts... For you know the the original material like Promethea and, and, and the League, uh, for the adapted and mat- uh, V the adapted material like Marvel Man that was actually created by Michelangelo, um, and even Watchmen was kind of like Marvel Man point two point you know those were the Charlton characters, right. but his concepts his ideas were so high minded, you couldn't divorce them from what you loved about. Them about what you were reading. That was why you were there. I mean, if David Lloyd had, you know, Martians came and took him away and somebody else had to draw V, I still would have read V. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I would have read V for V. I'm reading V for V. I'm not reading V for, for David Lloyd. I wasn't reading Watchmen for Gibbons. I wasn't reading, you know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the first trade uh, for, for Kevin O'Neill, although O'Neill's art is, is superb. It's great. Right, right. Um. So, you know, and even like somebody like um, like Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely, mm-hmm. you know, bringing it a little more modern day, you know, they did We Three together, I think. And then they did, uh, you know, All-Star Superman. You know, All-Star Superman, Superman is obviously, you know, it's DC. But it was Morrison's idea to do a totally like kind of trippy, different take on the Silver Age Superman. It was like a love letter to the Silver Age Superman. And it worked in a, in a great way. And I, you know, there are times where I'm like, I have other Frank Quitely comics that he's drawn and I love the pictures. Right. I'm a freak for Frank Quitely, but I will read All-Star Superman and love it and be moved by it. Right. And that's because of what Morrison brings to the table, not necessarily just because of, Fra- of Frank's illustrations. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. I mean, I, I think um, in some situations, it, it, I mean, you know, the best thing you can look for in, in comics, man, in any kind of creative situation is synergy, you know. And, you know, you know, the, these, these artists and writers, they achieve a synergy that they, that, that both of them uh, definitely, definitely, definitely help to make the collaborative effort and the combined creative presentation of the comic. And I, I think... You know, arguably, sometimes you're right. Like, I, I can't see, um, I can't read Swamp Thing without knowing 
that Tolobin, especially back in the day, now it's different. I mean, you, you, you can see Swamp Thing iterations now because everybody's still on the, on that tip. But the fact that right, right, right. But the fact that he he his his, his drawings were so immersive, and just elevated Alan's prose. I mean, to a degree of sophistication that that was well beyond like what I was expecting for that that particular character. I think the character was so I think the character was so maligned and so misused and so uninteresting until 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 um, when when you read. Um, the the initial uh, uh, writings of, of 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 Alan, it was it was a thing that that you know it's like wow, this is different. Wow, did he just say wow? Did that just do you know those kinds of things that make you like question? Right, 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 <laughs> right. So it's like right, and, and and it's funny that you should bring up Swamp Thing because I was going to tell a story, you know, and and and. You know, I remember, so when Swamp Thing came out, it was like early... 80s. Almost, no, it was early... Well, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I got married in 93, and I remember for the, maybe three last, for the three years or whatever, you know, prior to me getting married, Mm -hmm. I was more in and out of comics in terms of my reading. I wasn't buying as many. You know, I was, you know, I was tangentially aware of what was going on, but I wasn't an avid reader uh, during that period. I think I was, you know, dating and, you know... Getting engaged, all this kind of stuff, right? Right, right. right. So I remember after I got married and, and going to the comic shop down off Riverdale Road at Titan, and I was talking to Pat, and Pat was like, yeah, it's like all kinds of cool, exciting things are happening in comics. And he was talking about Swamp Thing. And he was like, you know, remember Swamp Thing? And, and the original iteration of Swamp Thing, Lynn Wein and, and Bernie Wright's in Swamp Thing, was more almost superhero-ish in a way. You know, Swamp Thing had like biceps and you know, and and looked yeah. like basically like a mossy superhero, basically a moss covered, root covered superhero. Right, right. But you know, certainly uh, Beset and Tottleman's interpretation of the character, you know, via Alan Moore's script and maybe even Alan Moore's description, we don't even know, um, was creepier and weirder, and and way more unnerving and less superheroish. So. I'm talking to Pat, and he's like, yes, this guy, Alan Moore. And I said, well, I remember Alan Moore from, you know, Big Ben, the man with uh, No Time to Crime. No Time for Crime. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, and in Marvel Man, I know who Alan Moore is. Yeah, he's writing Swamp Thing. And Pat was telling me. And so Pat described, he said, you know, the way he's approaching the character is, is, you know, it was always written in the past by Ween and, and Wrightson as a man who thinks he's a plant. But Moore's writing is a plant who thinks he's a man. Right. And that flipped the script. That in and of itself was enough to excite me. And like, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, what the, the fuck? Right. What? Right. Right. You know, he was talking about people eating sweet potatoes that are growing off of the swamp thing and getting high because it was like peyote or like, you know, like like mushrooms and shit. You know, people people would trip. Yeah. You know, he was telling me all this stuff and everything he's telling me, the ideas are exciting me. Now I didn't love Beset and Tottleman's art. Okay, really? Okay. I was like, okay. I mean, that's okay. Right. You know? Okay. 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 <laughs> it wasn't my jam, is what I'm saying. But the story, the concept, and the execution of the story was enough to kind of bring me in, and it really worked for me in a big way. And then you know, you know, of course, you know, you know, the rest is history. But. There is no one better to work on Swamp Thing. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. When I was asked to take over the book, uh, one of the things that I was asked was, uh, you know, like, uh, what do you want to do with the character? And I started thinking about it and uh, trying to 
come up with a way in which we could make him more of a swamp thing, uh, that we could show all the little patches of fungus and pin mould and lichen that are growing on him, you know, and actually get an impression that this is a vegetable, that he's crawling with insects, that he's, he's a mass of sodden plant fibre, he's not just a guy in a green suit. And when I wrote this to Stephen John, I mean, they were saying, yeah, this is just what we want to do. You know, it was just pure coincidence, but in two separate countries, we seem to have arrived at a, a similar idea as to how we wish to treat the character. And, of course, Stephen and John have been putting in no end of ideas, which I've been picking up on. We're just very much in tune on the book. I mean, I don't know if I could do it without them, because they're, they are just so incredible. They get everything absolutely right. You know, we've got other collaborations like uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Mm -hmm. Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, on Saga. Mm -hmm. And Vaughn is another, he's an interesting one, too, for me, in terms of, like, a writer where... Why the Last Man is a very popular kind of, you know, indie comic. Right. But it totally rests on the concept. Yeah. Not the, not the art. Like, you're totally going to buy into that because of the, the story and, what, and what's being said and how it's being said, as opposed to the art. The art is, is fine and it's, you know, serviceable. Uh, again, not trying to shit on anybody, but... Right. But it's the story that makes that work. Saga, it's probably a little more even-handed. I think uh, Staples' art is is, 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 is wonderful. Uh, and it's it perfectly, like you said, it elevates the story. It, 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 they, they're definitely, you know, carrying the weight equally there. Uh, um, so anyway, but what were you going to say? I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, to your point, that, that, that's how I feel about, like, for example, um, like, uh, like the Sandman. I mean, Neil Gaiman's writing. Exactly. Neil Gaiman's writing exactly. far exceeds any of his other collaborators' ability to, to execute his vision. Right. I mean, you know, um, there, there there are times where it's like, like for example, I listened to the Sandman, I listened to the Sandman audio uh, book, the first arc. I'm still listening to the second one. The one that's narrated by, or uh, they cast uh, James McAvoy as uh, as as as, uh, as uh, Morpheus. As Morpheus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 absolutely gorgeous, man. Absolutely, and very immersive. Like I, that, that's that's a theatrical play of the mind that I can listen to without having any visuals because I've seen I've seen the basic visuals. Now it's up to me to com to complete the, the the overall orchestration of what's going on inside of my mind, and I have no problem with that. I mean, at all. I mean, it just it takes me down a journey that I'm willing to go go down. But the books, conversely, because of the nature of the person who was doing the artwork, I think I I'm, I think I like Kelly Jones's. Uh, uh, spin on it. Uh, there were there were a few other artists that added to it that were that were okay, mm -hmm. but it's like they the excessive use of blacks and darks in things it, it it can it can either add or detract from the emotion and or the <coughs> or the, the power of presentation for comics. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Jack Kirby knew this well. Like when his foreshortening was when he did foreshortened arms and legs and things of that nature, the the thicker the leg, you know. It showed a show lack of depth, or showed the, the the instrumentation of death, depth and death, but depth in terms of the drawing, mm -hmm. you know. Right, and and that's important, man. I mean, the, the artist that mastered that. I mean, George Perez, for example, he was a master of all things comics. I mean, <laughs> this guy was he was a beast, man. I mean, to get that many figures in one one panel to get that kind of level of of of, of narrative uh, of a congruency. Throughout the storytelling was just like a rare uh, achievement for for artists, man. And I think um, where I'm going with this is that 
I think that that, that writers and artists uh, need to kind of just shake hands, and, and you know, and say, "Hey, you know, I I appreciate." <laughs> and you don't mean like shake hands and come out fighting, right, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, just just realize where you are and and what your what your respective uh, jobs are. You know, uh, for example, um, for a short time, Image Comics hired Alan Moore to do a a, a particular episode or a particular issue of um, of Wildcats. And that mm-hmm. that arc like gave me greater respect for some of those characters I never had before. They weren't just pretty pictures. Right. They they were they right. They elevated it again, man. And that's that's the that's the writers that's the writers do. That's what the writer has has to do. I mean that's what he has in a few very few words try and make, you know, an image Better than what it is. Look that that the formula that, that Jack Kirby had with with uh, with Alan, that Jack Kirby had with with Jack, that Jack had with St- Stan was necessary because if Stan just took what his initial words were and then and then went back into <laughs> and and, then, and just wrote the initial script and put that script down next to what Jack Kirby provided, those 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 stories never would have sold the way they did. The fact that Stan had the wherewithal to go back and say, okay, based on what Jack did. I'm going to correct, <laughs> I'm going to change the direction of where I was going with this story, you know? Yeah. And that's to his credit. You're not wrong. And, uh, I mean, again, you know, just I, like, I think even Adrian said that about that Wildcats uh, uh, run that more more did where he was like, Oof. Okay, wow. Yeah. You know, this guy made these characters who are like, you know, knock off Avengers or knock off Titans or whatever right, they are. Right. X-Men would have you. He made them so much more interesting, you know, with his approach. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would agree I would agree with you. I think the other thing too for me, man, in terms of writers and artists and um as far as concepts go, because again, like Loban Jeff Loeb and, and Tim Sale. Mm. You know, they did all those Marvels, the colors, you know, Daredevil this and, you know, Spider-Man that and all that. Mm-hmm. And that as a concept was really interesting. Again, it was them writing love letters to, you know, the original Kirby, Dicko, Lee creations or whatever. And, and and in some cases, you know, Wallywood and Don Heck, you know, uh, as well. But, you know, the approach, I don't know if it was Loeb's idea, if it was Sales' idea. I assume it was Loeb's idea. Mm-hmm. But the approach of doing that, you know, was a little less original. It was really more trying to capture some of that old magic and then Nostalgia. filter it through right. a more a more modern lens. Yeah. Um, there's a book called Bitch Planet by uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick and uh, Valentine Delandro. Uh, and Kelly Sue is a you know, great comic book writer. And she would get shit for, because she just happens to be a feminist. And so she would, you know, you know, fanboys would look at things that she would do in Captain Marvel and other things and, and, and accuse her of being, forcing feminist ideas into places where it doesn't really fit. So she said, oh, you want feminists? I'll give you feminists. And so she created this book with Valentine <laughs> with uh, Valentine called uh, Bitch Planet. Right. And the concept of it, again, is so super heavy where it's like, okay, you can't divorce the concept and, and the stories from what makes the book successful. Like, that's what makes it successful. People are coming to it. Bitch Planet tells you Everything it is in just the name, right? Exactly. <laughs> like just the name, you 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 already know what it's about. Without, I mean, in you know, in, in a, I'm saying that in a, in a humorous way, right? Um, I think the other thing too to point out is is there was a switch. There were actually multiple switches mm-hmm. prior to the late '80s, early '90s, and the speculator boom and all of that. Mm-hmm. Writers were writers and editors were in charge. 
they were the stars, not stars, but they were in, they were in charge in terms of comic American comics production. Okay. And then once we get into the era of, you know, the late eighties and early nineties, and you know, and seven million copies sold, and two million copies sold, and all of this kind of stuff, and then. You know, in the early 90s, you get into the eventual launch of, of Image Comics. Right. That's when, all of a sudden, the power shifted to the artist. If you had a great artist on your book, it didn't matter if the story sucked at all, the book would sell. Now, were people reading those books? Probably not. But they were buying it because of the speculator know, boom and things of that nature, which led you to believe they were stable and engaging. Right. And those artists became literal superstars. I mean, you know, Rob Liefeld became a star outside of comics. Yeah. As a result of working in comics, you know, Jim Lee was featured in things outside of comics. Right. Dennis Cowan, even though he's not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily put him as part of that. You know, he's in the Doers ad. Right. Because comic yeah, book. I remember that, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> comic book professionals became, you know, very well known in the mainstream pop culture world. So That's awesome. That was the second shift. But now it's shifted back, you know, in the early 2000s. It shifted back, and so now it's it's all about editors and writers again. Mm-hmm. You know they're in charge, and and now it's not just like you know Bob Haney and 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 the writers of the Silver Age and you know whatever. It's not just that they were in charge. Now the writers are the stars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Robert Kirkman, for example, yeah, yeah, Kirkman, and there there's there are a ton of others. You know, Scott Snyder and. Um, Gail Simone and, you know, uh, people like that. You know, all these these writers are the stars. And the artists are stars, too. They're still stars. But, mm-hmm. again, the writers and the editors are back in control. Mm-hmm. You know, seemingly. Seemingly. I don't work in the industry, so this is all, you know. No. This is speaking of specu- speculation, you know, this is all speculation right, right, right. on my part. Right, right. You know, a conjecture, even. But, but I do think that th- there's been a shift. And that's part of what happened. But I do think it's better for the comics because, to quote Brian Stelfreeze, the sensei, the sensei, sir, got I got to quote I got to quote the sensei. Got to, sir. You know, now that the emphasis is away from the art and selling art, you know, in the aftermarket and all of that, and you know, people are you know are, are creating comic pages digitally, so you know, there's probably less comic art, actual comic art, being produced now, physical pages, right, than there was 30 years ago, right, right, right. Um, I'm sure quite a few people are still drawing digitally and then printing that out and then inking it so that they can sell it later. Mm-hmm. But I say all that to say that the sensei pointed out that once the de-emphasis came off of the art and aftermarket and selling da, 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 all that stuff, the only thing you would be left to do as a comic book artist was to just focus on being better, mm-hmm. telling better stories, becoming a better drafts person, um, you know, like being better at your job and so we should be getting better comics right as a result not you know splashy flash you know splashy splash pages and people breaking out of panels for no reason and weird panel layouts for no reason and all of that horseshit you know well i mean i agree with you and i'll I'll add this to this i'll add it to that um you know as we know brian is a really really good storyteller i mean his besides being besides being a great draftsman he's also a, a consummate storyteller and, oh yeah, um, incredible. So, so for him, better is better storytelling, but for others, <laughs> better is more glitz, more glamour, more, <laughs> more, more, more three D implements. You know, more. You know, let's get closer to uh, the uncanny valleys you possibly can, and step over it into other uh, genres to make it more 
more of a, a transition point to the money. And the money is not in comics, as we know. The money is in taking comics to the next level, becoming video games and movies and television. So it, that's the ugly side of it. And, or that's the part, that's just, I won't say ugly, that's the sad part of it, is that no matter how hard the artist tries to get better, and will get better because of trying, or trying to and trying to up, uplift the narrative and, and, and transition the narrative to a greater place of storytelling and congruency with what the writer is offering. But as much as they try, you know, I don't be, mean to poo-poo, but as much as they try, it's still always going to be secondary to the dominant nature of what the, what the culture is. And the domination of the culture is movies and television and video games. And it's, it's a sad recollection because as, as you're trying to compete and try to be um, a part of the, the, the grander uh, landscape that is, that is comics, you see what you're up against, and you see what okay you're up to against TikTok and momentary slashes of, of of flashes in the pan of of interesting visuals supported by, you know, dominant uh, cultural narratives that you 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 can't you trying to get a foothold. It's hard to get a foothold in that situation, so you find yourself having to to transition towards, okay, I'm gonna do this comic, but it's gotta have these elements in it. Because I don't have these elements, I'm not even gonna get. A, I'm not even gonna get a chance with the the crowd I'm, I'm I'm trying to attack or try to become a part of. You know what I mean? Okay. So that's kind of like that's kind of like where I am now in terms of my own creative journey. It's like okay, yeah, I could draw, but is that good enough? I could tell a story, but is that good enough? Okay, what do I have to do to make to, to make, make make myself a standout from the already other already other competitive fields that are out there to make things hmm. engaging? So. It's weird. It's a weird place, man. It's a weird place, you know. Well, I think when 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 Sensei said what he said, and I was actually in in attendance, I was moderating a panel he was on when he said it. I think his point was to get back to the idea of writer and artist and 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 telling a story symbiotic symbiotically. Uh, those two individuals. Basically, the point he was making was is when the power shifted to the artist, the stories be- were trash, and so because the stories were trash. A lot of books came out, but they were forgettable. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So we came from Watchmen and you know Dark Knight and and Batman Year One, and then there's just this barren wasteland of 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 glitzy, hyped up bullshit. And then you know when the mainstream came to look and said, "Hey, well, what kind of stories are here?" Right. They you know like, I mean like like think about it. And maybe I'm wrong. I'm just thinking this off the top of my head, but. Are they making, I guess they kind of are, but are they making movies based on 90s comics? Mm. A lot of them? Or are the concepts typically being more of, you know, the obviously the 60s and 70s and maybe the 80s? But are they, are they going back to those 90s eras? I know we got, we got Venom movies out the ass, mm-hmm. you know, and more to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's talk of a Spider-Man 2099. But you know what I mean? Like the Peter Parker in, Sp- in the Spider-Man movies has always been the original Peter Parker from Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and John Romita right. Sr. Right. That's essentially who that Peter Parker is in all three iterations. Batman in the in the Nolan films is the Frank Miller Batman mm-hmm. and a little Neil Adams Batman. Mm-hmm. Again, not not squarely in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of other examples. You know, Iron Man was pulling from the original 60s Iron right. Man. Yeah. Pretty much all the way. You're, you know, you're dead on. Uh, the Infinity Gauntlet is from is not from that period. It's it's from just before that mm-hmm, period. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, I don't know if anybody's really pulling and say, oh, let's, let's make those stories and turn those into TV shows. Maybe they are, and I'm not thinking about well, it. I, just can't I think remember. they're trying, but, 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 but they're, failing, they're, they're falling apart of their own weight or lack of, or, or lack of, or lack of consistency in terms of storytelling and mm-hmm. the fact they seem to be just, be just imitating IPs of, of other more seasoned ones. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, the, the most recent mm-hmm. thing was with uh, Vin Diesel and, and Acclaimed Comics uh, I forgot the name of the story. I forget, see, it's thing. It's not even stick. Deadshot. I think his name was Dead, Bloodshot. 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 Yeah. I mean, while it may have been an interesting it story, it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> it was beyond awful. Yeah. Yeah. You saw it, or yeah. Oh God. I saw it. Oh wow. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I appreciate that, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I think the initial IP was was one of one of merit. I mean, I think I I, when I glanced at it on the on the stands while I didn't pick it up for various reasons. Uh may may have been budgetary ones, may have been lack of interest, maybe all those things that concocted to make me not buy it. Um mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't I don't you know, I it didn't capture my my interest. And I and same thing with the comics. It's like, yeah, this may be a maybe an interesting character. It may have some 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 cinematic resonance, but if you don't come from a place of like real story development, real character development, it's going to fall apart. It's going to fall apart. Right. You know, and I think. I, I, I keep going back to that whole thing about you have to care. Mm-hmm. Like the purpose of telling a story is to make the audience or the person that's engaged in the story care. Mm-hmm. 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 And they're just not going to care if it looks cool. Yeah. That's that's why Die Hard as an action movie it works. One of the reasons why it works so much better than all of the Steven Seagal movies put together. Right. right. You know what I mean? Well, not the Steven Seagal, not that the Steven Seagal movies are all terrible. Right. Some of them are. Right, right. <laughs> but that's, there's a reason why that one, exactly. <laughs> Ponytail man. Why are you, why, why are you upset, Steven? Because I'm not upset. This is my cool. I'm not upset. This is my cool look. <laughs> but, but I just think that, again, that's the point of a story is to make you care. I, rem- I remember we, we went on vacation and we were listening to, I, just on a humbug, I, s- I said I wanted to listen to the audiobook for I Am Legend. Okay. You know, uh, Richard, Richard Matheson. Right. And this was, you know, written in the f- late 50s, I think. Okay. This version was, was created, the actor sounded like he was 60 years old. Okay. Who was, you know, who was, uh, who was uh, uh, narrating and reading it. He was fantastic. Yes, I imagine so, man. I imagine so. He was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's... I mean, he was just incredibly dramatic and powerful, and and he, you know, his voice would ebb and flow and rise and then settle, mm-hmm. you know. And he was, come on out, Neville. Right. I mean, he made you feel it. Even because Chris started listening to it, you know, with me, and she was like, "Oh, this is really good. He's good." And it was, and and it didn't require any visuals. I didn't have to see Will Smith. I didn't have to see Vincent Price. I didn't have to see any of those things. I didn't have to see uh, uh, Charlton Heston. None of that stuff. Right. You know? Right. So I do think that story should move you. Story in of itself should move you. I think we're much more forgiving of plot holes and stories that don't quite work if the characters, if we want to stay with those characters, mm-hmm. if we like those characters, mm-hmm. if we mm-hmm. we want to spend time with them, we want to return to them next week, mm-hmm. even though, you know, even Archie Bunker is a racist asshole. We want to find out more. We want to come back. Right. right. Yeah, we want to come back. So, you know, Fred Sanford is you know 
a questionable father. Right. George Jefferson. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Maude is a questionable mother, but we wanted to come back, you know, to those characters, you know, week after yeah. week. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But I do think that having had this conversation with you in the, in that parking lot that mm-hmm. day and then having it now and, and kind of thinking about it ahead of time, mm-hmm. it really does make me kind of step back a little bit and say, you know, I don't I don't. I really do have quite a bit more respect and admiration for great writing and great comp because most comic book writers even you know are, are terrible. Mm-hmm. They're most most of them are bad. Oh really? You think so? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, most of them are terrible. <laughs> I mean, yeah. okay. But most of everything is bad. Okay, okay. Eighty-five percent of everything is is right, right, right. Awful, bad to awful. You know, 5% above that is probably pretty good to very good. And then there's a 10% of that's really excellent. And that's in, that's in every industry you can think of. Right, right. Low bars, middle bars, high bars, and sidebars. Did it dupes. And That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.